Section 64 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Golding. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1E, Section 64, Chapter 62. Part five. The chief taxes in England during the time of the Commonwealth were the monthly assessments, the excise, and the customs. The assessments were levied on personal estates as well as on land, and commissioners were appointed in each county for rating the individuals. The highest assessment amounted to one hundred and twenty thousand pounds a month in England, the lowest was thirty five thousand. The assessments in Scotland were sometimes ten thousand pounds a month, commonly six thousand, those on Ireland nine thousand. At a medium, this tax might have afforded about a million a year. The excise, during the civil wars, was levied on bread, flesh-meat, as well as beer, ale, strong waters, and many other commodities. After the king was subdued, bread and flesh-meat were exempted from excise. The customs on exportation were lowered in 1656. In 1650, commissioners were appointed to levy both customs and excises. Cromwell, in 1657, returned to the old practice of farming. Eleven hundred thousand pounds were then offered, both for customs and excise, a greater sum than had ever been levied by the commissioners. The whole of the taxes during that period might, at a medium amount, to about two millions a year, a sum which, though moderate, much exceeded the revenue of any former king. Sequestrations, composition, sale of crown and church lands, and of the lands of delinquents, yielded also considerable sums, but very difficult to be estimated. Church lands are said to have been sold for a million. None of these were ever valued at above ten or eleven years' purchase. The estates of delinquents amounted to about two hundred thousand pounds a year. Cromwell died more than two millions in debt, though the Parliament had left him in the Treasury above five hundred thousand pounds and in stores the value of seven hundred thousand pounds. The Committee of Danger, in April 1648, voted to raise the army to forty thousand men. The same year, the pay of the army was estimated at eighty thousand pounds a month. The establishment of the army, in 1652, was in Scotland fifteen thousand foot, two thousand five hundred and eighty horse, five hundred and sixty dragoons. In England, four thousand seven hundred foot, two thousand five hundred and twenty horse, garrisons six thousand one hundred and fifty-four. In all, thirty-one thousand five hundred and fourteen, besides officers. The army in Scotland was afterwards considerably reduced. The army in Ireland was not much short of twenty thousand men, so that upon the whole the Commonwealth maintained, in 1652, a standing army of more than fifty thousand men. Its pay amounted to a yearly sum of £1,047,715. Afterwards, the Protector reduced the establishment to 30,000 men, as appears by the instrument of government and humble petition and advice. His frequent enterprises obliged him from time to time to augment them. Richard had on foot in England an army of 13,258 men, in Scotland 9,506 in Ireland about ten thousand men. The foot-soldiers had commonly a shilling a day. The horse had two shillings and sixpence, so that many gentlemen and younger brothers of good family enlisted in the protector's cavalry. No wonder that such men were averse from the re-establishment of civil government, 
by which, they well knew, they must be deprived of so gainful a profession. At the time of the Battle of Worcester, the Parliament had on foot about eighty thousand men, partly militia, partly regular forces. The vigor of the Commonwealth and the great capacity of those members who had assumed the government never at any time appeared so conspicuous. The whole revenue of the public during the protectorship of Richard was estimated at one million eight hundred and sixty-eight thousand seven hundred and seventeen pounds, his annual expenses at two millions two hundred and one thousand five hundred and forty pounds. An additional revenue was demanded from Parliament. The commerce and industry of England increased extremely during the peaceable period of Charles' reign. The trade to the East Indies and to Guinea became considerable. The English possessed almost the sole trade with Spain. Twenty thousand cloths were annually sent to Turkey. Commerce met with interruption, no doubt, from the civil wars and convulsions which afterwards prevailed, though it soon recovered after the establishment of the Commonwealth. The war with the Dutch, by distressing the commerce of so formidable a rival, served to encourage trade in England. The Spanish war was to an equal degree pernicious. All the effects of the English merchants, to an immense value, were confiscated in Spain. The prevalence of democratical principles engaged the country gentlemen to bind their sons' apprentices to merchants, and commerce has ever since been more honorable in England than in any other European kingdom. The exclusive companies, which formerly confined trade, were never expressly abolished by any ordinance of Parliament during the Commonwealth. But as men paid no regard to the prerogative whence the charters of these companies were derived, the monopoly was gradually invaded, and commerce increased by the increase of liberty. Interest in 1650 was reduced to 6%. The customs in England, before the civil wars, are said to have amounted to £500,000 a year, a sum ten times greater than during the best period in Queen Elizabeth's reign. But there is probably some exaggeration in this matter. The post-house, in 1653, was farmed at £10,000 a year, which was deemed a considerable sum for the three kingdoms. Letters paid only about half the present postage. From 1619 to 1638, there had been coined £6,900,042. From 1638 to 1657, the coinage amounted to £7,733,521. Dr. Devenant has told us, from the registers of the Mint, that between 1558 and 1659 there had been coined £19,832,467 in gold and silver. The first mention of tea, coffee, and chocolate is about 1660. Asparagus, artichokes, cauliflower, and a variety of salads were about the same time introduced into England. The colony of New England increased by means of the Puritans, who fled thither in order to free themselves from the constraint which Laud and the Church Party had imposed upon them, and before the commencement of the civil wars it is supposed to have contained twenty-five thousand souls. For a like reason the Catholics, afterwards, who found themselves exposed to many hardships, and dreaded still worse treatment, went over to America in great numbers and settled the colony of Maryland. Before the civil wars, learning and the fine arts were favored at court, and a good taste began to prevail in the nation. The king loved pictures, sometimes handled the pencil himself, and was a good judge of the art. The pieces of foreign masters were bought up at a vast price, and the value of pictures doubled in Europe by the emulation between Charles and Philip the Fourth of Spain, who were touched with the same elegant passion. Van Dyck was caressed and enriched at court. 
Inigo Jones was master of the king's buildings, though afterwards persecuted by the Parliament on account of the part which he had in rebuilding St. Paul's, and for obeying some orders of council, by which he was directed to pull down houses, in order to make room for that edifice. Laws, who had not been surpassed by any musician before him, was much beloved by the king, who called him the father of music. Charles was a good judge of writing, and was thought by some more anxious with regard to purity of style than became a monarch. Notwithstanding his narrow revenue, and his freedom from all vanity, he lived in such magnificence that he possessed four-and-twenty palaces, all of them elegantly and completely furnished, insomuch that, when he removed from one to another, he was not obliged to transport anything along with him. Cromwell, though himself a barbarian, was not insensible to literary merit. Usher, notwithstanding his being a bishop, received a pension from him. Marvel and Milton were in his service. Waller, who was his relation, was caressed by him. That poet always said that the protector himself was not so wholly illiterate as was commonly imagined. He gave a hundred pounds a year to the divinity professor at Oxford, and an historian mentions this bounty as an instance of his love of literature. He intended to have erected a college at Durham for the benefit of the northern counties. Civil wars, especially when founded on principles of liberty, are not commonly unfavorable to the arts of elocution and composition, or rather, by presenting nobler and more interesting objects, they amply compensate that tranquillity of which they bereave the muses. The speeches of the parliamentary orators during this period are of a strain much superior to what any former age had produced in England, and the force and compass of our tongue were then first put to trial. It must, however, be confessed that the wretched fanaticism which so much infected the parliamentary party was no less destructive of taste and science than of all law and order. Gaiety and wit were prescribed, human learning was despised, freedom of inquiry detested, cant and hypocrisy alone encouraged. It was an article positively insisted on in the preliminaries to the Treaty of Uxbridge, that all playhouses should forever be abolished. Sir John Davenant, says Whitlock, speaking of the year 1658, published an opera, notwithstanding the nicety of the times. All the king's furniture was put to sale, his pictures, disposed of at very low prices, enriched all the collections in Europe. The cartoons, when complete, were only appraised at three hundred pounds, though the whole collection of the king's curiosities was sold at above fifty thousand. Even the royal palaces were pulled in pieces, and the materials of them sold. The very library and medals at St. James's were intended by the generals to be brought to auction, in order to pay the arrears of some regiments of cavalry quartered near London. But Sidon, apprehensive of the loss, engaged his friend Whitlock, then Lord Keeper of the Commonwealth, to apply for the office of librarian. This expedient saved that valuable collection. It is, however, remarkable that the greatest genius by far that shone out in England during this period was deeply engaged with these fanatics, and even prostituted his pen in theological controversy, in factious disputes, and in justifying the most violent measures of the party. This was John Milton, whose poems are admirable, though liable to some objections, his prose writings disagreeable, though not altogether defective in genius. Nor are all his poems equal. His Paradise Loss, his Comus, and a few others, shine out amid some flat and insipid compositions. Even in the Paradise Loss, his capital performance, there are very long passages, amounting to near a third of the work, almost wholly destitute of harmony and elegance, nay, of all vigor of imagination. 
This natural inequality in Milton's genius was much increased by the inequalities in his subject, of which some parts are of themselves the most lofty that can enter into human conception, others would have required the most laboured elegance of composition to support them. It is certain that this author, when in a happy mood and employed on a noble subject, is the most wonderfully sublime of any poet in any language, Homer and Lucretius and Tasso not excepted. More concise than Homer, more simple than Tasso, more nervous than Lucretius, had he lived in a later age and learned to polish some rudeness in his verses, had he enjoyed better fortune and possessed leisure to watch the returns of genius in himself, he had attained the pinnacle of perfection and borne away the palm of epic poetry. It is well known that Milton never enjoyed in his lifetime the reputation which he deserved. His paradise lost was long neglected. Prejudices against an apologist for the regicides, and against a work not wholly purged from the cant of former times, kept the ignorant world from perceiving the prodigious merit of that performance. Lord Summers, by encouraging a good edition of it, about twenty years after the author's death, first brought it into request, and Tonson, in his dedication of a smaller edition, speaks of it as a work just beginning to be known. Even during the prevalence of Milton's party, he seems never to have been much regarded, and Whitlock talks of one Milton, as he calls him, a blind man, who was employed in translating a treaty with Sweden into Latin. These forms of expression are amusing to posterity, who consider how obscure Whitlock himself, though Lord Keeper and Ambassador, and indeed a man of great abilities and merit, has become in comparison of Milton. It is not strange that Milton received no encouragement after the Restoration. It is more to be admired that he escaped with his life. Many of the cavaliers blamed extremely that lenity towards him, which was so honourable in the king, and so advantageous to posterity. It is said that he had saved Davenant's life during the protectorship, and Davenant, in return, afforded him like protection after the Restoration. Being sensible that men of letters ought always to regard their sympathy of taste as a more powerful band of union than any difference of party or opinion as a source of animosity. It was during a state of poverty, blindness, disgrace, danger, and old age, that Milton composed his wonderful poem, which not only surpassed all the performances of his contemporaries, but all the compositions which had flowed from his pen during the vigor of his age and the height of his prosperity. This circumstance is not the least remarkable of all those which attend that great genius. He died in 1674, aged 66. Waller was the first refiner of English poetry, at least of English rhyme, but his performances still abound with many faults, and what is more material, they contain but feeble and superficial beauties. Gaiety, wit, and ingenuity are their ruling character. They aspire not to the sublime, still less to the pathetic. They treat of love without making us feel any tenderness, and abound in panegyric without exciting admiration. The panegyric, however, on Cromwell, contains more force than we should expect from the other compositions of this poet. Waller was born to an ample fortune, was early introduced to the court, and lived in the best company. He possessed talents for eloquence as well as poetry, and till his death, which happened at a good old age, he was the delight of the House of Commons. The errors of his life proceeded more from want of courage than honour or integrity. He died in 1687, aged 82. Cowley is an author extremely corrupted by the bad taste of his age. But had he lived even in the purest times of Greece nor Rome, he must always have been a very indifferent poet. He had no ear for harmony, and his verses are only known to be such by the rhyme which terminates them. 
In his rugged, untenable numbers are conveyed sentiments the most strained and distorted, long-spun allegories, distant allusions, and forced conceits. Great ingenuity, however, and vigor of thought sometimes break out amidst those unnatural conceptions. A few anacreontics surprise us by their ease and gaiety. His prose writings please by the honesty and goodness which they express, and even by their spleen and melancholy. This author was much more praised and admired during his lifetime, and celebrated after his death, than the great Milton. He died in 1667, aged 49. Sir John Denham, in his Cooper's Hill, for none of his other poems merit attention, has a loftiness and vigor which had not before him been attained by any English poet who wrote in rhyme. The mechanical difficulties of that measure retarded its improvement. Shakespeare, whose tragic scenes are sometimes so wonderfully forcible and expressive, is a very indifferent poet when he attempts to rhyme. Precision and neatness are chiefly wanting in Denham. He died in 1688, aged 73. No English author in that age was more celebrated, both abroad and at home, than Hobbes. In our time he is much neglected, a lively instance how precarious all reputations founded on reasoning and philosophy. A pleasant comedy, which paints the manners of the age and exposes a faithful picture of nature, is a durable work, and is transmitted to the latest posterity. But a system, whether physical or metaphysical, commonly owes its success to its novelty, and is no sooner canvassed with impartiality than its weakness is discovered. Hobbes's politics are fitted only to promote tyranny, and his ethics to encourage licentiousness. Though an enemy to religion, he partakes nothing of the spirit of skepticism, but is as positive and dogmatical as if human reason, and his reason in particular, could attain a thorough conviction in these subjects. Clearness and propriety of style are the chief excellencies of Hobbes's writings. In his own person he is represented to have been a man of virtue, a character nowise surprising, notwithstanding his libertine system of ethics. Timidity is the principal fault with which he is reproached. He lived to an extreme old age, yet could never reconcile himself to the thoughts of death. The boldness of his opinions and sentiments form a remarkable contrast to this part of his character. He died in 1679, aged 91. Harrington's Oceana was well adapted to that age, when the plans of imaginary republics were the daily subjects of debate and conversation, and even in our time it is justly admired as a work of genius and invention. The idea, however, of a perfect and immortal commonwealth will always be found as chimerical as that of a perfect and immortal man. The style of this author wants ease and fluency, but the good matter which his work contains makes compensation. He died in 1677, aged 66. Harvey is entitled to the glory of having made, by reasoning alone, without any mixture of accident, a capital discovery in one of the most important branches of science. He had also the happiness of establishing at once his theory on the most solid and convincing proofs. And posterity has added little to the arguments suggested by his industry and ingenuity. His treatise of the circulation of the blood is further embellished by that warmth and spirit which so naturally accompany the genius of invention. This great man was much favored by Charles I, who gave him the liberty of using all the deer in the royal forests for perfecting his discoveries in the generation of animals. It was remarked that no physician in Europe, who had reached forty years of age, ever, to the end of his life, adopted Harvey's doctrine of the circulation of the blood, and that his practice in London diminished extremely from the reproach drawn upon him by that great and signal discovery. 
So slow is the progress of truth in every science, even when not opposed by factions or superstitious prejudices. He died in 1657, aged 79. This age affords great materials for history, but did not produce any accomplished historian. Clarendon, however, will always be esteemed an entertaining writer, even independent of our curiosity to know the facts which he relates. His style is prolix and redundant, and suffocates us by the length of its periods. But it discovers imagination and sentiment, and pleases us at the same time that we disapprove of it. He is more partial in appearance than in reality, for he seems perpetually anxious to apologize for the king, but his apologies are often well grounded. He is less partial in his relation of facts than in his account of characters. He was too honest a man to falsify the former. His affections were easily capable, unknown to himself, of disguising the latter. An air of probity and goodness runs through the whole work, as these qualities did in reality embellish the whole life of the author. He died in 1674, aged 66. These are the chief performances which engage the attention of posterity. The numberless productions with which the press then abounded, the cant of the pulpit, the declamations of party, the subtleties of theology, all these have long ago sunk in silence and oblivion. Even a writer such as Selden, whose learning was his chief excellency, or Chillingworth, an acute disputant against the Papists, will scarcely be ranked among the classics of our language or country. End of section 64, chapter 62, part 5, recording by Greg Golding, Georgetown, Ontario, Canada.